Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said. It's the place where conversation matters. My name is Robert. Special guest today, Ms. Julie Cajun, talking to us directly from Montana. Julie is a Salish Indian woman who propagates much of the culture that is relevant to an understanding of American indigenous life today. She is the recipient of a Kellogg grant and will be appearing in New York City in a one-woman show, which uh, I'm hoping I can certainly attend and thoroughly enjoy. I'd recommend it to anyone in the listening audience. Julie, welcome to Seldom Said. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to have an opportunity to reach out and invite people in person to come listen to some wonderful stories and music. It certainly is our pleasure. Can we start with a little bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you to this time and place? Well, I um, am a citizen of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes, and that is through my mother's side of my family. So my mother was enrolled here. Uh, I do have a mixed heritage background. My father uh, was from the White Earth Reservation. Both my parents are deceased. And I have been to his reservation and read, done some reading, but I certainly don't say that I am, you know, Anishinaabe or Chippewa because I didn't grow up with that culture in that land. So I say that I am Salish because it's the land I grew up on. It's the community I grew up in with all my hundreds of Salish relatives here. Um, But I'm also keenly aware of my background from my great-great-grandparents, Angus MacDonald and Catherine Baptiste. Of course, Angus came here from Scotland in 1838. Um, he was from the, the Highland Chieftains, and our family history there is quite interesting, traced back to Summerled and uh, survivors of the Glencoe Massacre and participants in that old clan, land, and chieftainship system, you know, that was dismantled by the English. So his background, I think, kind of prepared him to have an understanding of Native people, and he went to work for the Hudson Bay Company and met a Nez Perce woman um, and married her, and she was related to the to many prominent Nez Perce leaders, and so then they had my uh, great-grandpa, Joseph MacDonald, who then was Scots and Nez Perce, and he married a Salish woman, and then that's where my grandmother, um, her parents. So I have a mixed background. Um, certainly, I didn't grow up, you know, with any kind of Celtic traditions or anything, but we grew up very aware of that heritage. At one point, you know, we had Angus's bagpipes, and unfortunately, they burned in a house fire, uh, Walter MacDonald, my great-uncle, his house. So I was aware of this mixed background, but very much kind of immersed in my Salish homeland 
and relatives, and that's the history and stories that I guess shaped me, you know, my worldview and my identity, and and I feel very connected to this place. You know, it's the place that I that I know most intimately and that I fiercely love and would protect. The Highland Scott uh, traditionally were Catholic. Romanists, as the uh, English call them, mm-hmm. when you uh, related that to your life on the res or life with the community, was there less of that and more of simply a love of the ground, the land, the spirit? Well, you know, prior to uh, contact with the Europeans, you know, of course, we had our own spiritual traditions and they continued, you know, and that included you know, our creation story and a belief in um, the creator and an understanding that the world is an animate place, that we live in an animate world, and that as human beings, we are the youngest sister and youngest brother of creation. So knowing that all creation came before us, and then we are the last ones. And so if you think in a birth order, the youngest have a certain respectful humility and deference to the older. And so certainly our people had that understanding that we are the youngest of creation and that we have, you know, a particular humility and respect for everything that came before us. And so that those traditions and worldviews still persist today, um, both in how in people's spiritual practice and, and in their worldview, and in certainly how even as a tribal nation and a government, a political entity, we protect and care for places, both our reservation homeland, but also places that we have been politically separated from, but that are still very important to us. And so that's something that is very apparent in in our resource management and in the amount of time and effort and financial resources that we spend to care for this place and realizing that we're passing it on, you know, not to our just to our kids and grandkids, but to the unborn, and that that's a generational responsibility that we have. So it was that kind of worldview and understanding that was very uh, sophisticated and very old and had served our people very well living a life of reciprocity, you know, and understanding that, you know, anytime we're taking something that we're giving something back and that whole idea of not taking too much, not being greedy, you know, but taking just what you need and remembering to be thankful and um, appreciative of that. Because, you know, we were subsistence livers. We were buffalo people. We're the most interior of the Salish tribes, so we're considered, you know, uh, I guess anthropologists would divide us into categories, so they would call us a plateau tribe. Um, So we're kind of in between you know, the plains and then going out to the coast. But we were a buffalo culture also. But we had uh, contact with Catholics early on, and we actually had a 
a prophecy, a prophet who told, foretold of the coming of both white people and, and I guess, priests, Catholic priests. He called them black robes. He said they wore black robes. And so we actually sent four different delegations. When some Iroquois came and visited our tribe, and they told us about these uh, Catholic priests, immediately people thought of the prophecy, and they thought that those are the spiritual people in that prophecy, and they actually went to get them. They sent four different groups to St. Louis, and they ended up um, encouraging Father Desmet to come here, and so, you know, in the late 1840s, uh, the Jesuits interacted with our tribe. That's pretty early on, at our request, you know. A spiritual person, in our perspective, was somebody who was powerful and strong. And so, I think part of the reason was we were in crisis, of course, because of smallpox epidemics that came before contact with people, um, tribes that had been pushed, dispossessed and pushed into our homeland, and that created a lot of conflict, you know, disease that we had never known because we had everything to cure whatever problem. So I think a great crisis was occurring, and we were looking for solutions, and I believe that was one motivation to bring you know, who we believed were these spiritual people back and to what one elder told me to add their spiritual strength and power to ours. And it didn't always turn out that way. You know, their, our relationship with the Catholic Church is very complicated. Um, and, and, and some people in our community still practice Catholicism, some people rejected it. Some people mix it with their traditional ways. You know, so it's a, it's a complicated community, and it's not just one, everybody doing things one way now. So that's interesting. So there were some priests who accepted our traditional practices, and then there were other priests who told us that, you know, those were bad, and, and they we had to not do that anymore, and, you know, in the late 1800s, they, they tried to oppress all spiritual practices through the Court of Indian Offenses, and if anyone was caught doing ceremonial things, you know, they could be punished and put in jail, so a lot of things in communities had to go underground to be saved, so... It's it's a very complicated history that's not easy to tell, you know, in a single, um, even through a single story or, or timeline. I can certainly appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Looking back in time and judging what did occur, do you feel that a great deal of spirituality from the Europeans, from the West, was manipulated as a form of subjugation? Yes. I, I certainly do. I think that, you know, one of the first things that happened when, you know, first the government realized, you know, the United States, after, you know, becoming the United States, this new country realized that 
they weren't going to extinguish the Indian problem by killing all the Indians. They didn't have a, a big enough military. It, it was impossible. And so they came up with other policies, you know, and one was, you know, confining them in small land bases, the reservation land system. But the other one was compulsory school attendance. And the first schools that Indians were sent to, you know, were parochial and they kind of divided reservations up among the different Christian denominations. And then those government schools were very intent on, you know, the, the famous saying of uh, Pratt, who started Carlisle, which was a government school, kill the Indian and save the man. And so, you know, the government was intent on erasing identity. You know, so when a child would go to school, the first thing they do is they'd remove their traditional clothing, you know, they cut everybody's hair. They didn't allow native language. And so no, um, nothing, that, everything that gave somebody's meaning, their family, their cultural identity, you know, everything was taken from them. And then they were expected to assimilate that into mainstream American society. And when children would return home from school, if they went back to their traditional ways, there was a saying that was kind of derogatory, but I thought, you know, was kind of um, that I would see celebratory. They would say, oh, he or she returned to the blanket. And that meant they went back to traditional clothing. You know, they went back to being Indian, whether it was Salish or Lakota or Diné or whatever. And so I see that as a powerful thing to be able to reclaim your identity. But others, you know, the government and non-Indians looked on that as a bad thing. Because, you know, the idea was that European culture was superior and that they were civilized, more civilized, when, you know, Native people were extremely civilized if you look at feudal societies when Europeans came over here. You know, we had very um, democratic societies, and we didn't have a need for prisons or jails, and and people were honest, you know, were so honest and had so much integrity. And some tribes had very complicated and complex political systems. You know, and the model for democracy in America came from the Iroquois Confederacy, and it was not a European model. They looked at um, what the Iroquois had done, you know, because they had the states and they wanted to create a central government but some autonomy. And so, you know, the Iroquois Confederacy gave this enormous intellectual and political contribution to the United States that is really not recognized very much, um, certainly not in mainstream narrative histories of the United States and I didn't learn about it when I was a student, either in college or in public school. So, in all the so, yeah, there's so much. <laughs> <laughs> there really is. And so much that has not been put down to paper yet. Right. I do remember it's not until a few years ago that there was a question on the New York State Regents in regard to the Haudenosaunee Union and the Iroquois Confederation. It was simply one question worth 1.2 points. Oh, wow. And it took that long to have that happen. And the majority of those who took it in the metropolitan New York area did not get it correctly because it simply wasn't taught. Right. 
how how are people where where are people going to learn that because it isn't taught. You know, Oren Lyons made a great quote. I, I watched a film of his talking about the story of how the Confederacy came about. But one of the quotes he said was, America, or democracy didn't come to America on a boat. It was already here. And I, I think that's so powerful and important to know, because often when people think of Native people and contributions, you know, they have kind of a, a generic idea of, craftspeople or foods, and they rarely think of intellectual, philosophical, or political contributions. And certainly there is so much of that um, that Native people have given, but that goes unrecognized, because it's where, where is it taught? And you're right, our history is still primarily oral, and so when I began teaching and was including some language. I worked with a fluent speaker in my classroom and teaching history and some cultural traditions and things. You know, my source wasn't a book. I had to go talk to people. Julie, Julie, <laughs> I, I, talked, I, I would go talk to elders. Julie, if I may, I'd love to have you hold that thought. It's a fascinating discussion. Mm-hmm. We're about to have our first station break. Okay. When we come back, I'd like to talk about that and then talk about the idea of linguistics and the language. Okay. They are very difficult for Westerners and their ear to deal with, and yet yes. to fully understand, one has to understand the language. So we'll be back yes. in a few moments. Okay. Our guest okay. is Julie Cajun, a Salish woman who is an artist of unparalleled abilities. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. You're listening to a podcast from LIU Studios. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to this show on your podcast app of choice. For more of our programs or to support LIU Studios, visit WCWP.org. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is the place where conversation matters. Special guest, Julie Cajun an indigenous artist. Julia, there's one thought that periodically comes to the fore in historiography classes, especially in regard to European history, and that's the case of Indians such as Quanah Parker, who lived as an Indian and died as a wealthy rancher. Is there an acceptance of assimilation into the dominant culture? You know, I, I, think, I think there is. But I think that the acceptance is more deeply, people are more deeply embraced if it is more of a going back and forth between two worlds. Although certainly for a time, a lot of people on our tribal council, you know, you would have looked at them and said um, that they had assimilated and given up a lot of traditional ways. And those people had power for a while in our community on the council, you know, and that's a long, complicated political history. But I think today the idea, you know, the ideal in talking about working with young children and how do we want our kids to grow up, we want them to know who they are, 
you know, as Salish people, and we want them to know about their homeland, their history. Um, you know, they need to be familiar with their language because embedded in everybody's language is the worldview. But we also know that we live in a contemporary society and that we are a nation within a nation and that these young people are going to go out into the world and that they need to be culturally competent to go between two worlds. And that takes a particular kind of skill, and sometimes it's hard. You know, when I worked as a school administrator, there were a lot of difficult moments where the schools are primarily run by non-Native teachers and non-Native school boards, but the majority of the students in the school are Native. But Native people haven't really had a place at the table of power in determining how their kids are going to be educated or what is even defined as knowledge or important to know. And so you end up, you know, when you're going into that other world, you end up at times in conflict, sometimes hostility, sometimes resistance, you know, and sometimes, you know, honestly and frankly, it's institutionalized racism. And sometimes the people working in that system are not even aware of it. They are so used to having things their way that they are not even aware that that way is different from how we would have us. <laughs> and, you know, all the holidays are Christian holidays. Everything is, you know, I, I didn't read a book by a Native author until I was an adult. And that was a transformative moment and experience for me, reading Vine Deloria Jr., Leslie Marmon Silco, Joy Harjo, who is the Poet Laureate, right, for our nation now. Um, so, you know, when you go into that other world, you know, and I tell teachers as Native people going into teaching, don't be naive going into that school system. And just because you got hired, don't think that everything has changed. Because race, even though that is socially constructed, you know, and we're all the human race, you know, who you are as a Native or who you are um, as an immigrant to this country, you know, your ethnicity um, is a very real issue in the United States. And we see that race and class continues to be you know, a, a crisis issue, I think, in our country. And so when kids go into schools, you know, with a teaching degree and they're enthusiastic and right out of the program, you know, I'm, and I don't mean to be cynical or uh, depressing, but I want them to go in aware that at some point they will be challenged for what they're teaching. At some point, they will probably encounter bigotry or racism or just ignorance. And they just need to be ready, you know, and they need to be strong and they need to be, you know, I say get prayed up, you know, get spiritually prepared. Because when you go into those old institutions, you know, even at a university, I think Native people have a very difficult time and Native studies are often marginalized and People have a difficult time. My sister's taught at UC Berkeley and UC Davis, and she's at the University of Washington now, and I have watched her 
you know, maneuver politics and marginalization her whole academic career. And she's just such a fine scholar. And it kind of wears you down and takes a toll. And so I admire people that have been able to do that and stay the course because I believe they make a difference in that institution, regardless of the resistance. So the school that I was at, I know that my presence there, outside of, you know, my quality of teaching made an enormous difference for Indian kids because it was just someone from the community that they knew. And all the kids called me auntie. You know, and I wasn't everybody's aunt, but I just claimed all of them because it was the first time they had someone in a professional position that looked like them, that was, they knew I was from their community because Native people were often the janitors or the helpers or the cooks. And so they hadn't seen a Native person, you know, in a professional role as a teacher or administrator. So I knew that was important. And then I also knew that in that role, I represent all Native people, which isn't fair. But when you, as a Native person, whatever role you're in, you end up, you end up in that position. And it really isn't fair that you are representative of all Indians. <laughs> And that people will make judgments about all Indians based on how you behave, your professionalism, your level of expertise. It's a tremendous amount and of pressure. So I, I, yeah, so I talk to young professionals about it. Don't be naive. You know, don't, don't be discouraged or in despair, but go in smart and go in prepared so that when something like that happens, it doesn't devastate you. Because I wasn't really prepared for the amount of resistance that I met as a new teacher in my in a school on my own reservation. I was not prepared for the amount of anger, hostility, and resistance. It was shocking to me. And I don't know why, <laughs> you know. And so I don't want I, other young professionals to go through what I did. It took a lot of, um, you know, counseling from my mother and sisters and, and people in the community to kind of... Um, you know, help me be courageous and strong and and take the high road and speak the right thing and not give in to, to bitterness, but um, speak the truth in a loving way, but continue to speak the truth. And, you know, Howard Zinn said sometimes the most radical thing we can do is to tell the truth. It's and so very true. Yeah, <laughs> particularly with history, you know, and he was speaking as a historian. Barack Obama, in an interview, once mentioned that he also had to have that talk with his daughters. Mm -hmm. Speaking to yourself as an American Indian indigenous mother, did you feel you had to have that talk with your own children? Oh, let me tell you, <laughs> Bob, this talk has gone on in our family um, generationally. So we have talked about the minefield of politics of, number one, being a mixed-blood Indian, you know, which has its own issues, and then living in a, a reservation that was homesteaded, so you have more Native 
more non-natives than native people. We are outnumbered by non-natives. So that, that creates a very strange political situation. So I grew up as a kid hearing my Uncle Bearhead, my Uncle Bill, my mom, my aunt um, talk about this a lot, my great aunt and uncle, because, well, my great uncle was on the first tribal council. And so they, you know, he had to deal with federal agencies. And I actually had two great uncles on the council, and then my Uncle Bearhead was on for quite a while. But they dealt with all of these things, and they were keen to talk about it at, at the table. And so tribal affairs and all of the social issues were a common steady diet for us growing up to listen to. And I think probably had some influence in shaping, you know, what what my sister, you know, my sister Luana going into sociology, becoming a sociologist and a researcher, and my other sister, Kathy, who is a, a counselor, she's an addictions counselor. But I think it really impacted us, and we were aware that each of us had a generational responsibility to contribute something with whatever gift or talent or skill we could develop. And that's how all of our relatives communicated that to us and talked about what are the issues. You know, we talked about the issues in our community all the time. And so, and so I think my kids, you know, this huge extended family grew up. I have a cousin, I was just visiting with him last night. He's doing a presentation with teachers and he's, worked in federal Indian law. He was the lead attorney for the tribe for about 12 years, I think. And so we're aware of that and of trying to help our kids, you know, maybe negotiate, maneuver it a little better than we did. You know, my mom certainly talked with us at length about particularly being women, because I think Native women are marginalized to a greater degree than Native men are. And Native women haven't been, aren't in as many leadership roles as I think they should be. You know, if you look at tribal college presidents or, you know, I think there could be more Native women leadership. And it's hard when you get into those systems. So I think patriarchy has um, spilled over a little bit into Native communities from mainstream society. And certainly you experience it as a Native woman, because I often worked with all white male administrators. You know, I was usually the only woman, and I was certainly the only Native woman. And that has its own particular dynamic. And sometimes it was very hard. Um, you know, and, and I could tell a million stories about things that were said, and sometimes out of ignorance, and, you know, sometimes just out of you know, people being um, bigoted or prejudiced and not thinking that a Native woman, you know, could be competent and qualified or an intellectual. And so those old perceptions still persist about Native people. And I think Native people continue to be objectified more in mass media than other ethnicities. I mean, the fact that, you know, the Washington Redskins are still around, <laughs> you know, says something. It's like, how come we can continue?
continue to objectify Native people and children's books, you know, animals dressed as Indians. That is still going on. I don't think that would be allowed for any other ethnic group in America, but it still continues with Native people, and that's a particular phenomena, I think. If I may... And I'm sure my sister could articulate that um, in a much more meaningful way as a sociologist about must, what that says I must about reach out to her in the future. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. Uh, there seems to be an inbred acquiescence amongst Native people, a politesse, a politeness, if you will. Mm-hmm. Have you reached a point on a personal level where you're tired of being polite, Julia? You know, I have. <laughs> and I was just telling a friend a story because I stopped by to visit um, a friend of mine, Frances Vandenberg. Um, she's been very generous with me with her knowledge of the language and um, and has mentored me in a lot of ways. But she has also um, admonished me because I can tend to, I want to get confrontive. <laughs> and she's like, you know, shaking her finger. Now, don't, I don't want you doing that. But sometimes I think we are too polite. And I think there is a moment for um, speaking up because sometimes I feel if I don't, then you almost feel complicit, right, in what's happening. And so I've become more bold. I am a yaya. I have three grandsons. You know, that gives me a certain um, amount of freedom to speak my mind. And so I think I've become much more vocal in addressing or confronting and trying to do it in as gentle way as possible, but confronting. I just had a conversation with somebody about um, white male privilege. And, you know, he said, well, I don't even know what that is. And I'm like, Right, because you have it, and you're unaware that people are unprivileged. It was a totally new concept for this person. And, but, you know, probably 10 years ago, I might not have said anything, but I just said, well, I think that what you were saying is, you know, coming from a place of white male privilege and thinking that you know more than I do, and I don't think you do on this subject, so... <laughs> Marvelous. So I am getting a little more bold. The only book I do remember in my early academic life that was written by an Indian about Indian life was a book called In the Time of Vittorio, which was about Mm. the Apache uprising and written by and about the Apache chief Vittorio. Do you find literature available in a library outside of periodicals, outside of poetry, outside of some things that like uh, are published by Vindaliaria and others. When you set up a library in a school, where do you go to facilitate the shelves? Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> I've been on this quest for um, quite some time. And so, you know, there have been trailblazers like Find Deloria. Uh, Orrin Lyons has done some writing, Donald Grindy, But a lot of histories are specific that have been written by Native people are about their own tribe. And so there aren't a lot about tribes here. Um, Julie, if I may, I must apologize. Part of the difficulties of having a three-segment program 
is mm-hmm. uh, the, the definition of what a station break is, and we have to do one oh, that's now. Fine. Please okay, hold the thought because it is fascinating. And it's okay. something that I know as an educator myself, as an academic, I've wanted to include on the shelves right. of public schools for white students. We'll be back in a moment. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. You're listening to a podcast from LIU Studios. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to this show on your podcast app of choice. For more of our programs or to support LIU Studios, visit WCWP.org. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Hello, my name is Robert. The program is Seldom Said. It's the place where conversation matters. I won't waste time on the introductions. Our guest is Julie Cajun. Her attitude, her abilities, and her intellectual acumen speaks for itself. Julie, uh, the question of militancy, Dennis Banks, Russell Means, is there a place for that? You know, I, I believe there is a place for that. And I think that Native people from the beginning of, you know, being occupied, having their countries occupied, and, you know, having to interact with uh, both European governments first and then the U.S. government, Indian people resisted in many different ways, and often history tells a story of the victim. We're presented as victims, and, oh, all these things happened to us. Well, yes, these things happened to us, but people were active agents in their life. And so from the beginning, Native people acted with agency, you know, certainly um, with a a degree of intelligence and, and thoughtfulness in trying to protect their people and what would be best for their people. But they resisted in many different ways, and our tribe has a history of that resistance. When they tried to remove the Salish from the Bitterroot in violation of our treaty, our people stayed down there. They refused to leave. Treaty law is supposed to be the supreme law of the land by the U.S. Constitution. You know, and Charlotte wouldn't leave, and there's some wonderful... Um, his father was a treaty signature, Victor, or Plenty Horses. He refused to leave. When he passed away, his son also held fast there against government documents with forged marks and signatures and settlers moving in, again, in violation of the treaty. So they've really, Indian people have been engaging in a particular kind of militant resistance. Um, You know, sometimes, you know, in the past, often that was ended up in armed conflict. But at this point in time here, you know, 1855 to 1891, the Salish stayed there until they were forcibly marched north. And so I, I believe that that kind of resistance is sometimes necessary to call our country to conscience. I think that's what happened during the Civil Rights Movement, and I think without that kind of action that change does not come about. And so certainly there are people who take issue with the individual character of AIM members, and some of them um, may have been lacking in moral character. 
But I think that movement brought Native issues to mainstream America. So people that, you know, thought Indians had all vanished or they'd all assimilated, and all of a sudden mainstream America is looking at what's happening in Pine Ridge or what's happening here or there. And so I think that was important, just like the Dakota Access Pipeline movement was extremely important, you know, and people suffered and people were treated poorly. Uh, uh, A friend of mine that is living down there now, you know, she was arrested. She's a great-grandmother and held in a dog kennel, you know, but would she do it again? Yes, she would do it again. And so sometimes that kind of action and movement of people is necessary. And I think particularly now there's this kind of complacency with media where people are distracted by idiotic media. You know, what is happening with the rich and famous or, or these silly reality shows or, or little sound bites of somebody's life. It's like, who cares? what they wore or who they're dating, (laughs) what is going on. You know, the American, mass American public is distracted by the ridiculous and absurd and should be being presented with, you know, these these profound issues of humanity. You know, like what we've done to to immigrant children, you know, and families and, and kids that still haven't been reunited with parents. I mean, the things that are happening are so important. And it seems that sometimes without some kind of, you know, and you could call it militant, I I could call it civil disobedience or nonviolent resistance, these, you don't catch the heart and mind of the American public. I mean, it almost has to be very large and dramatic. Do you know what I mean? Because people are so distracted by the irrelevant and the unimportant. And I know that sometimes that's an escape for people. You know that that's how they escape maybe issues that are very challenging for them personally or or whatever. But it seems very pervasive, and it's hard to get real meaningful news anywhere. You know, you have Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman, Alternative Radio, David Barsamian, um, I think our public radio station is going to drop that show. It's one of the only shows I want to listen to where I can get real news. But how do you get the attention of, you know, the American public? Sometimes it has to be something dramatic like that. And I'm not in favor of any kind of violence, but I think that... Um, you know, you can be uh, engaged in civil disobedience in a very ethical and powerful way. No. And and we saw that with the civil rights movement, but the civil rights movement certainly didn't solve anything. And, you know, there I, that people should be outraged that, you know, a black child or man can be killed and nothing happens. I mean, Native women disappear girls and women disappear and who cares what happens so there should be things that outrage the general public and they don't and so you almost need you know mass demonstrations and civil disobedience to catch the attention 
Will that change policy? I don't know. I I keep thinking of another thing Howard Zinn said, and he said every good change that came about in our country did not happen because of a politician. It happened through the movement of ordinary people who came together, you know, for a cause of justice. And he calls those moments, fugitive moments of compassion, when people people came together for something good. But I think we need leaders, and in Indian country, I don't know who those are, and, and I feel bad saying that. You know, Wilma Mankiller was a powerful leader. You know, I keep speaking of Vine Deloria because I depended on his writing, his scholarship, his activism, his outspoken work as a Native educator. He kind of broke trail for a lot of people. I, but who are those leaders for if social I might inter- justice in our country today? If I might interrupt just for a moment, you've hit on a thought and a subject that really is the close to my heart as well as a listening audience. If we go back to 64, 65, 68, in the 20th century, African Americans had Dr. Martin Luther King, who many of us had the pleasure of walking behind. Mm-hmm. People on the coast uh, followed Cesar Chavez. Is there right. someone whose pulse you can touch now? Someone who you would say to the audience, listen to him or her. They know what's happening. They have their finger on the pulse. Listen to them. They're correct. They're telling the truth. Is there leadership out there you would direct our attention to? That's a really hard question. <laughs> you know, then I'm going to get into um, my ideas on a presidential <laughs> nominee. So I don't know if you're th- talking about political leaders or social leaders, um, because certainly there are people that are writing. And, and trying to do things. And writing can be a form of resistance, too. But, you know, in Indian country, I don't know, I don't think anyone has really taken the place, you know, Cesar Chavez. Also, we had um, the people on the coast, the fishing wars, and David So Happy, um, and other people, you know, who resisted. But I'm not seeing that. I guess I saw some of that at the Dakota Access Pipeline, where there were Native people that came together. But I don't know in means... Are you talking about a mainstream leader who seems to have it right? Someone who... Malcolm X had a comment once where he said, basically, I want to wrap my knuckles on a desk and have everyone look up. Someone who notices. Someone who gets your attention. Well, (laughs) I guess I'll just say it. Um, on a national scale, you know, the person that got my attention and the only person I've, I've never given money for political campaigns, but I did give money to Bernie Sanders. Um, and I, I think he's an ethical person. I think he gets it about um, lots of things for mainstream country. I think he's an intelligent and ethical enough man to where he would get it if he had real conversations with Native people on sovereignty and treaty rights and, you know, allowing us to engage in self-determination and, and manage our own homelands and and funding Indian Health Service appropriately. You know, Indians, there was a Crow tribal councilman, Darren Old Coyote, and he said, Julie, he said, Indians are the only ones prepaid for health care. He said, and we paid with this whole country. He said, and I have to fight 
for every dollar of health care for my people. It's an incredible statement. So I, I, I believe that Bernie Sanders would get that, and people might be going, Bernie Sanders? I don't... I. I connected with him and his uh, his viewpoints, and you know, other than that, a mainstream person, I don't know. There, there really isn't anybody. Certainly, there are lots of writers out there, but I can't think of anybody who's in the mainstream pulse. Other than that, we're unfortunately within six minutes of the end of this program, which hopefully will be an initial program. We've done other programs about indigenous people as well as African-Americans and their difficulties in this culture. Can we spend some time talking about belief, your one-woman play, your creative process, what the play is about, and an open invitation to anyone in the listening audience who wishes to attend? Yeah, so they're, they're women's stories, and they're both Salish women from the past, women in my family that are gone, and then some of my personal stories. I didn't intend to tell personal stories, but I worked with another writer, Jennifer Finley, and a director, Linda Grindy, and they were very persuasive in saying, don't come in and say, this is what it's going to be. Let's let a process emerge. And so we spent the summer telling stories. I brought in historic information on different women, and then at the end of the summer, and then I would tell stories because I'd say, oh, that reminds me of my great aunt. That reminds me of this. So I ended up writing some stories down, and so it's how you come into the world and kind of my identity and how that affirmed my belief in myself and in the spirit world, and then how you can lose that going through life and what things happen to you. So how you come in believing in life and possibility and who you are, and then how that can be shattered and then how you can reclaim that. And so that's really a story that's universal to anybody that's lived, you know, that um, has suffered loss or betrayal or hardship or oppression. And then how do you recover from that? And And I believe you can. And so it's the story of how you can lose belief and come to despair and then how you can go beyond that. And so it's through the stories of women who were faced with great hardship and sometimes personal tragedy, but who lived beyond it, who did not give in to bitterness or hate, and who retained the capacity for compassion and for belief in something greater and the ability to love, because that's often the first thing that people lose, because when they are hurt or betrayed or deceived or pressed, they withdraw. And that's sometimes when we need to be open and when things can come. So I believe that there is a possibility for the healing of our emotional selves and spiritual selves. I believe that. And so it touches on that and a, a lot of different things, both through very personal stories and then stories of my great aunt and my childhood and and spiritual experiences I had, and personal experiences. And then there's music. The original music was composed by Gary Streltsos Volcanum, who's a violinist from Lummi. Gary's from Seattle. He's Greek-Italian-Lebanese, and Gary's friend David Lons, who's a pianist. Um, They went through the stories and worked with me and created an original music score 
So some of that will be there. Gary will be with me live on stage. And so there's family history, personal history, tribal history. And then the thread in all of that is the human condition. And that's what I believe connects us, is that we all share the human condition in that uh, we want to belong, we want to love and be loved, we want our children One final to be thought, then. healthy and happy and joyful. And we want this planet can to you be direct, well and the land can heal us. Can you direct the listening audience to the theater, the times, yeah. and the cost? It's at the Gene Frankel Theater in Lower Manhattan, 24 Bond Street by Lafayette. And it's September 18th through the 21st, evening performances at 7, and a matinee on the 22nd at 2 o'clock, and tickets are $30. If you go to the Gene Frankel website, you can purchase them online, or you can just show up to the theater and get a ticket the evening of the performance. So I invite everybody who's interested. It's, it's a different kind of theater. It's not something that you'd normally see. We're going to be there for five days, and then we're gone. I don't know that I will ever do this again. It's The first time I did it was in 2012. I've done it in Spain and Scotland and other places, but I'm this may be my swan song <laughs> with this with this performance. So um, there's five opportunities, and I hope people come. I must bring this I to... I must bring this I to... I think they'll leave feeling a I, connection, I hope. I do hope. There's a great quote from Miles Davis. He was once asked what life is like. Is it a classical piece or a jazz riff? And he said, it's a jazz riff. Isn't all life that way? And that seems to be the kind of life you've had. The nuances, the steps and the dance... Mm-hmm notes. Yes. I know I'm looking forward to being in the audience. I'm hoping that many in the listening audience will buy a ticket and be there to join me. I hope so. I hope so. I hope they join. Um, we'll, and and I, I believe they'll leave with a connection and some hope. Thank you so much. Our guest Thank has been... Thank you so much, Robert. Oh, it's my pleasure. Please stay on the line and we'll continue our conversation okay. off mic. Our okay. guest has been Julie Cajun. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. <laughs>